Good morning. So I, I didn't want to disappoint you today too much. You might be like, okay, firstly, where's Brian? Second thing, where's our picture? Um, so I do have a picture as we begin this morning. Now, it's not as exciting as pictures of being in Israel because I have not been in Israel, but I have been skiing. So there's a quick little picture for you. In January, um, when Brian was in Israel, I went for a quick trip to go skiing with some family friends, and we went to a place called Sun Peaks. And Sun Peaks had 13 different chairlifts. Now, previous to this time at Sun Peaks, I'd only ever skied at a, a little hill that I'd lived beside for a while, which just had one lift. And it wasn't a chairlift, it was a T-bar lift. And they boasted that it was the longest T-bar in North America, which if you've used a T-bar lift, you'll know is not really something that your thighs would ever say that you should boast about because it hurts. You basically put the little thing behind you and squat your whole way up the mountain and it hurts. But at Sun Peaks, there were 13 chairlifts. And I was skiing with family friends and their kids. And they are, they are like pro skiers. Now, I am a competent skier, but I am like captain of the caution brigade, okay? I like to ski in that really sweet spot, that little small spot where I'm like going so fast that I feel like a total boss, but also I'm completely safe at all times, okay? It's very important for me to feel safe at all times. Now, one day we were skiing and Naya, their teenage daughter, thought that the most fun thing we could do would be to go to right to the top of the mountain, okay? Nothing less than that would be fun on this particular day. So that would require us to take two different uh, chairlifts. You can take away the picture now, it's not that interesting. Um, that would require us to take two different chairlifts. So one that we'd taken before to a certain point in the mountain, and then another one called the crystal chairlift, which would take us right to the top of the mountain. We were like, why not? There's no reason why this wouldn't be a good idea. Let's do it. So we queued up and we got our first chairlift. We got our ski lifts passed, uh, scanned, and we, we got on the chairlift and we went up and we followed the directions to try and find the crystal chairlift lift and we approached and we were like wow there's there's no queue for the crystal chairlift what could possibly go wrong we we got checked onto the crystal chairlift by a staff member who was there um four children and three adults and we the moment our bums hit the seat we started to assess that all of the lifts we could see in front of us were completely empty first thing and second the, the lifts that were coming down the other side of the mountain were completely frozen like comically frozen but if you've been on a chairlift, you'll know that once you're on a chairlift and you've pulled down that little flimsy cover, there's no getting off the chairlift until you're at the top. So we sit in the chairlift and we notice that soon as we look out, what we could previously tell to be the sky and then the ground just kind of started to blur together. And where once we could sort of see like a few chairlifts ahead of us, then we could just about see the chairlift that was directly ahead of us. And then we could barely see our own hand in front of us. And we sat for a further 12 minutes on the crystal chairlift, ascending to the top of the mountain. Now at the top, by a sheer feat of, of gravity and chance, we get off the chairlift and we find that we can see no one, nothing, no maps, no hills. There's no such thing as off-piste because we can't see piste. And we just assess for a second that uh, there's nothing to be found up here, not even an apology from the staff member at the bottom who led us ascend to our certain doom. So we, um, we react in different ways. At that point, um, Steve, who's nearly a pro skier, like teaches skiing as an expert skier, he, he can't even stand up because he's so tall and his depth perception is just shot up there. So he's like fallen all over the place. Jen orders Steve to get the map out of his pocket in the hopes that we can read it. Um, I start to beckon down angels and angelic help, hoping that that will provide some sort of uh, help and comfort in this moment. And Tessa, the youngest child, just lay down. She just lay down in the snow and she started to shout into the white abyss, I hate 
this just time and time again. And it was very hard to reason with her in that moment. And I remember watching her and thinking, it's funny, you know, I, I really empathize with her response to this situation, but weirdly, I feel okay. Like, I'm kind of able to laugh at this because as I look around, I see that I have a couple of really good skiers with me. And if I was ever going to be stuck in a mountain, maybe they'd be the sort of people that I'd want to be with in this moment. The only way down a ski hill is to go down a ski hill. And so we did eventually get down, but the only way through it was to keep going. Today, I want to talk about perseverance in the in-between because over the, the past couple of weeks, even as lockdown measures start to lift and things start to change, there have been moments when I've looked out at the fog of my own future and the fog of 2020 as a year. And honestly, I want to lie down and I want to shout, I hate this. We exist as a church, you'll have heard us say maybe in the past, we exist as a church to lay the foundations for long-lasting reawakening. And I believe that God is doing a reawakening work in my heart, in, in the hearts of many in this year and through everything that's going on. He's waking us up to himself. He's waking us up to injustice. He's waking us up to hope, the hope that we can have in Jesus and Jesus alone. And in response, I believe that the enemy would have us stop and sit down in the, in the snow. I think he'd have us withdraw, hide, fall asleep, give up. We're finding that what started really suddenly is not ending quickly. And as time goes on and new depths of human brokenness, of our own brokenness rise to the surface, we can either confront it or we can ignore it. And I think we have a choice in this season. I have a choice. Do I look at the brokenness of everything around me and know that I'm not in control? And do I stop? Do I sit in the snow? And do I hope that the sky will clear before I freeze? Or do I keep going? even though the snow is deep, even though I don't know where I'm going, even though I can't really see very clearly ahead, even though I might fall down and have to get back up again and again and again, I have a choice to make. We're in the in-between. We're in the in-between between drastic life change and life on the other side, whatever that might look like. But as I've thought about it this week, I've been so reminded that when it comes to the story of the kingdom of God, we live our whole life in this place. So there's got, to be, there's got to be things that we can learn right now that are going to apply to our whole lives lived in the in-between because with Jesus, the kingdom of God came and yet it didn't come fully. It's coming. And it's here and yet it's not here yet completely. And we can see that right now all too obviously. Our prayer every Sunday at pre-service prayer is God, let your kingdom come because we're training our hearts, we're trying to train our hearts to cry out, God, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes, fully some future day when Jesus returns, but also now, let it be now. Break through now. And in the midst of, of all the thoughts this week, God has been speaking to me about perseverance, about keeping on, keeping on, no matter what. And there's a passage I want us just to plant our feet in today, and it's from Hebrews. It's one I keep coming back to in the season, and it's actually leading on from where I left off when I, I did a message at the end of our reawakening series on living courageously at the start of lockdown, which feels like, in some ways, like a lifetime ago, and in some ways, not very long ago at all. I'm going to read from Hebrews. I'd love you to read along with me. Um, join me in that. It's from chapter 11, verse 29. It says this, By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched round them for seven days. By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. 
And what more can I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped at the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They, were, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes and in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, quick question for you. You can respond in the chat if you would like to. Um, Were any of you that kid who was like the primary school sports day champion? I would like to know who I can still be friends with at the end of today. So if you were the champion, can you please reveal it? If you were the, the cool kid who won the sprinting races, I would like to know who you are. Um, because in primary school, I lived in perpetual fear and dread of sports day because everything in me loves to win and I just could not win. I had no capacity for winning in those races. But there was one race, one time that I got placed in. And for me, at that point in my life, you know what? That was good enough. I came third. I got a bronze medal in the slow bicycle race. Now, a slow bicycle race is um, not your typical kind of race, but it is actually a race to see who can successfully cycle the slowest from point A to point B. And I came third. I was the third best at cycling slowly uh, because it actually is really quite difficult to cycle very, very slowly. A week ago, um, a week or so ago, I was out on a walk and I felt like God drew my attention to um, a little child and a dad. And the kid was on a bike and they were cycling ahead of their dad. And I could hear the dad sort of saying like, keep going, keep going, son. And it was at a a particular point when the footpath was quite busy and you can tell this kid knows that he he should sort of be avoiding people and he was finding it a little bit difficult to steer in the right direction. And his dad was like, keep going, keep going, son. But the child did not keep going. The child tried to turn He sort of wobbled, and then in his panic, he tried to stop, and he fell, Um, and it was unsuccessful. And his dad then explained, and I watched from a distance as he explained to him that he didn't fall because he wobbled, but he fell because what he needed to do when he wobbled was to keep going. He needed to keep cycling straight ahead, and actually, he fell because he tried to stop at that point. Perseverance is defined as continued effort or determination or persistence in doing something despite difficulty or delay. So talking about perseverance in the in-between today, I'm not talking about brute force. I'm not talking about inner strength. I'm not talking about just trying harder, but I'm just talking about the simple act of continuing, of choosing to keep going, persisting, continuing to pedal, putting one ski in front of the other in the face of maybe difficulty or delay or both. The author of the book of Hebrews delivers this powerful call to perseverance prefaced by this epic rundown of what happens when God's faithfulness meets the the perseverance of his people in prayer and action. 
They talk about people who had to keep walking in the space where the sea should have been, people who had to march around walls seven times before they fell down, people who conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and then received what was promised, people who came close to the mouths of lions, people who should have felt the burn of flames that came close to them, who escaped the edge of the sword. I love the choice of words there, escaped the edge of the sword, because I can imagine, like, it comes close. And it's in that context of lived out faith that women received back their dead, brought to life again. We pray, God, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let your will be done here. And we want to see the miraculous breakthrough. We want to see God move. And so if we do, we need to hear this call to perseverance and we need to choose how we are going to respond in this moment. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. There's a few simple things I see here in this call to persevere that I'd like to highlight today. The first one is that we must throw off anything that would hold us back. I love how they say, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. There is an invitation to be ruthless in our rejection of anything that would slow us down, trip us up, hold us back when it comes to God's calling on our life. The author here names this throwing off of things as a preparation work, the sort of work that you do before you run and while you're running so that you can keep running and go long. I just finished a challenge where I ran every day in May. It was fun, it was challenging, which is exactly what you kind of hope for when you sign up for a challenge. Day four of 31 days was hard. I think day four was maybe the hardest run that I did. And I remember running on day four and thinking, I am only at the start and I have to run 27 more times. If I'm going to keep going, if I'm going to finish strong, I'm going to have to do some work here. I'm going to have to do something that's going to help me keep running for a long time. So like anyone would, I bought 20 kilograms of Epsom salts off Amazon Prime and I started to bathe in them every single night. And I can testify that Epsom salts are either um, incredible because they work or they are pretty dust that someone is selling on the internet for a high profit because you can't feel them, you can't smell them, they may as well not exist. But that's what I did to try and finish the race, to make sure that I would finish the race. I believe that God is doing soul work in my life right now. I believe that he's doing uh, like deep heart surgery style work among us where he wants to cut me, he wants to cut you loose from things that would hold you back, things that would stop you from being able to run well and run long. And I want to let him do this deep refining work in me so that I can continue to run and not be held back, not be hindered. If I sleep through this season, if I refuse to be freed by God from the things that would hold me back, then the image that comes to mind for me is when I used to walk my old dog and we'd get to the driveway and he'd be so desperate to run ahead, but so blind to the fact that I had him on a leash that he would be like pulling and heaving and literally choking himself. And all the while I was like, Barney, let me set you free. Like, I can do this. This is easy for me. I don't want to sleep through this season if there's things that God wants to release me of. I want to let him do it so I can run unhindered so that I'm not like a dog on a leash choking myself. The New Living Translation puts it this way, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. 
I used to read this passage and the way it uses the word us, I used to read it and allow myself to really generalize and be very vague about it and think, yes, yes, you know, sin is bad, sin trips us up, let's get rid of any sin. But if I actually dare to apply this directly to myself and I think, what would it look like for me to strip off every weight that holds me down, that holds me back, the sin that so easily trips me up? What is that sin? What is my heart bent towards? What is the stuff that would so easily trip me up specifically? And how can I root that out of my life? How can I throw that off? It's probably different for me than, than what it is for you. And I think God probably has a work to do in me that will look different to the work that he has to do in you. But I need to pay special attention to what he's doing in my life. I need to let him deal with the sin that would so easily trip me up. In lockdown, we've experienced lots of things that we love that typically have directed our lives have been either stripped away completely or they've been undermined. And some of these things are totally good and I will welcome them back with open arms when we can again. But there are other things in there that other like unhealthy attachments or maybe in church what we'd call idols, something that we put first in our, in our lives. Some of those things have been stripped away too and we have a choice now. Do we leave them in the bin do we, do we leave them where they are or do we bit by bit, phase by phase, pick those things back up and let ourselves be misdirected and slowed down again? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. Those who use the things of the world should live as if not engrossed in them. There are things that I was engrossed in that I just don't have the option of being engrossed in anymore and I want to learn to hold them lightly. I want to learn to let go when I need to. I was reminded this week that a real-life adult man sued Red Bull in 2014 because he'd been drinking Red Bull for 10 years and hadn't got wings yet. I don't want to spend 10 years drinking Red Bull expecting to get wings. If there are things in your life that you have seen in this era are fake gods with fake promises, don't bring them back in. Throw them off. Let it be done. Second thing I see in this invitation to persevere is that we must run in the right direction. Some honest thoughts I've had in the last few months. My life has been interrupted. My life has been put on hold. My life has been derailed. Now, I'm able to take these thoughts captive and I'm able to call them lies, which they are. But the fact that they rise to the surface of my mind and my heart, it tells me something about what I'm running towards at that moment because ultimately my race hasn't changed. I have to face up to the fact that the calling on my life has not changed. The details of my life may have, but my calling hasn't. The author calls it the race marked out for you or the race God has set before you. Both of those imply to me a certain amount of design and intention in what has been planned and set out for us. A friend of mine made a ridiculous false accusation this week and, and said something about how treadmills run for you, um, which, is ridiculous and obviously untrue, but it made me think that I think sometimes we live our lives with God as if we just have to keep running and it doesn't matter if we're not going anywhere. You can't run a race on the spot. You certainly won't finish it. You certainly won't win. I think God has set a route before me. And actually this, anything that's going on in, in this year has not swerved it, but I can keep running in that race that he's given me. The invitation off the back of Pentecost is to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to be propelled into the mission and ministry of your life with God. And that mission and ministry for you will not have changed, 
But we as many temples where God's presence dwell, we have a responsibility to run where he leads us, to go, to not stop. My prayer life sometimes reveals to me just how attached I am to breakthroughs and finishing lines. I want the bit that it says, you know, and all these things will be added on to you as well, or, and God will make your path straight. Those are the bits that I want. But the more I think about it, I, I wonder if God is much more attached to the, the idea that I would learn the lifelong lesson of trusting in him with all my heart and leaning not on my own, on my own understanding. And I have the option to do that right now. Paul viewed finishing the race as specifically completing the task that Jesus had given him to do. There are lots of ways that my calling and your calling align, and, and we are called to do um, something all together as Christians that is the same, but at the same time, I think that there are going to be specific things that God is going to ask you to do. There's going to be specific things that God has asked me to do that are set apart for you and I individually. In Colossians, there's a, a funny wee bit at the end. It's not like laugh out loud funny, but it's kind of like Bible funny. And I, uh, I really enjoy it. It's just a bit at the end of Colossians where Paul writes, tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I love it because it just kind of comes out of nowhere and it's like, oi, you, tell him, don't quit. The idea that he had something to complete, a ministry that he'd received from Jesus to complete. I don't want to quit. So there are some things we... Um, there's some things we might even miss about doing church online. And I think one of them is uh, truth typing, which Brian has now irrefutably named truth typing, um, whether we like it or not, which I think we love so much because it basically allows us to be verbally responsive without being verbally responsive. And I wonder how that'll kind of play out when we're back in the building. But I would love you to truth type right now to type into the chat, I will run my race if you're committed to that. If you want to do that, I will run my race do the thing that God has asked you to do. 12 weeks ago, there was a high chance that fear would make us selfish. Now I think there's a chance that fatigue will make us want to withdraw. But you can say today, no, I will not withdraw. I will run my race. I once tried to see how long I could cycle with my eyes closed. Uh, I must have been 17, 18. No, I'm kidding. I was 12. I was like, maybe younger than 12. I don't know. My mom can say in the chat. I was young and I tried to cycle with my eyes closed. I don't know what I was trying to achieve, but it didn't last very long. I hit the lamppost, I bled, it was, it was sore. God is doing a work in our time. And I think the enemy would have us cycle with our eyes closed through this, getting nowhere. We must keep our eyes open. It's the third thing I see in this invitation to persevere is we must keep our eyes open. For some of you, it is entirely right and it is a God-ordained thing for you that this season would be one of rest. But there's such a difference between Sabbath and spiritual sleepiness, which Brian referred to a couple of weeks ago. We Sabbath, we are told to Sabbath so that we can stay awake to the things of God, not so that we can sleep through them. We need to keep our eyes opened. There are two very different stories at play in our world right now. And if, if our eyes are fixed on Jesus, we have a chance to see God's kingdom coming and moving as he's always doing good. But if we close our eyes to that, if our eyes aren't fixed on Jesus in this season, then the dominant story is one of hopelessness and human strength trying to combat that. And it just falls short all the time. If our eyes are fixed on Jesus, it will impact how we experience this year. Easy example, obvious example, but it's obvious because it's so great. Peter steps out of the boat. He walks onto the water. He looks at Jesus and he walks he looks to the wind and he's afraid and he starts to sink. 
It means something to fix our eyes. It implies to me a certain amount of effort and determination. And in the in-between moments in our lives, I think it's the difference between me passively sitting this one out or actively waiting on God, like the sort of active waiting that the psalmist describes in Psalm 130 when they say, I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. I want to wait that way. I want to actively wait on God because it sets me up to see and notice the light breaking through. It sets me to live in holy anticipation of when his kingdom is going to break through, anticipating breakthrough at any time because it could come at any time. How do we keep our eyes open? I mean, there are so, this is a, that's another talk in itself, but I know that one thing just on my heart this week that just consistently for me throughout this season has just been to switch on worship music. It has felt to me like as much relief giving, that's an awful sentence, it has, it has brought as much relief to me as if Jesus literally did reach out and pull me up out of the water when I feel like I'm sinking, just to change the atmosphere, just to enter into a space where I'm gonna worship because worship for me, it, it triggers my history with God and points me towards what he might do in the future quickly and easily. Maybe it's something different for you, but we need to fix our eyes on him. Why, why do that? Why keep going? Why persevere? I think if we do, we will find that we have enough. The enemy wants to tell us that this is impossible, that this is overwhelming, that it's impossible, that we can't get through it. But in Exodus chapter 16, we catch up with the Israelite people just when they've run out of Egypt's resources. And in their wilderness moment, God, through what he gives them out of his goodness, awakens them to himself every single day, daily, he awakens them to what he's done. It says, in the evening you'll know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and who he is to them. In the morning you'll be filled with bread, then you'll know that I am the Lord your God. He tells them they will see the glory of the Lord, which they do through like fire that leads them and through water that comes out of a rock, but they also and maybe mostly see it through the daily gift of enough in the wilderness. God will give us enough. We will find enough and he will give in line with his best imagining of our flourishing, whatever that looks like, whatever that requires, even if for you and I, sometimes it doesn't seem to make sense. When the Amalekites attack in Exodus chapter 17, Moses sends Joshua to fight with an army and he goes up onto the top of the mountain to raise his hands in the air to intercede and pray. And in an iconic image, we're told, as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. Finally, for us to persevere, I think we need to commit to community. Who are your people? Who are the people on your right and your left who, when they notice that your arms are tired, are gonna hold them up for you? Can you imagine them? Can you picture them right now, who your people are? Maybe you can. But if you can't, we wanna help you find those people so that you can commit to community. We don't need to do this on our own. In fact, we can't do it on our own. You're gonna have people who are gonna hold your arms up and you're gonna be that person to someone else in this moment. You're gonna have an opportunity. You're gonna have plenty to see that someone is tired and to hold their arms up so that they can keep going in their God-given destiny or someone will do it for you so that you can keep going in your God-given destiny. To conclude, Brian said last week that the only way the church stops is if we stop. This isn't a do more kind of message. This is, this is just a keep going message. 
I heard someone called Julian Adams this week say that we are ankle deep in the rising tide of spiritual awakening. I love that because I can imagine it and I can feel it and I think you can too, that something is happening, that a fire has been lit. God is lighting fires in us. He's lighting fires in our city, in our land, in our world of calling people back to himself, but we're ankle deep and we've got to keep going into the deeper, into the more, believing that it's there. Now, if I learned anything from teaching years of fire and food skill at a summer camp, it's that you've got a choice when you've got a small fire. Do you put it out, wait for things to dry, hope that you can start again, or do you get down close to the fire? Do you get on your knees and blow on that fire, willing to let your face get a little dirty, willing that you might inhale some smoke, but desperate to fan it into flame that it might grow. There's a fire starting and I wanna get on my knees. I wanna fan it into flame. I wanna keep going. A revivalist called Gypsy Smith famously said that the secret to revival is to find a piece of chalk, go into your room, shut the door, draw a circle on the floor with a piece of chalk, sit in it and pray and ask God to start a revival right there. It's a simple challenge today, but the challenge is to say, God, start with me. Maybe type that into the chat right now, God, start with me. If that's your prayer, if that's where your heart is at, if you wanna stand with me and say, God, start with me, then and type it in. But your challenge today, your first challenge is to go into your room, close the door. If you rent your flat, don't draw a circle in chalk. But if you don't, you know what? Go for it, do whatever you wanna do. Put on some worship music if it helps, but kneel if you're able. Humble yourself before God and just say, God, start with me, awaken my soul. Acknowledge that he is lighting a little fire in you and you have a choice right now to just let it fizzle out, put it out actively or to fan it into flame and ask him to, to blow on that, to breathe life into that. Second challenge is to check in on your friends. Check in on the people around you and hold their arms up. If you need to hold their arms up. In that passage, I don't want to, read into it too much, but for Moses, they see that his arms are, are flagging and that actually when his arms are down, the Israelites are losing and they lift his arms up. Don't wait for your friend to call you and say, my arms are tired and I need you. Look, check in on your friends, lift them up if they need lifted up. Ask questions like, what is God teaching you in this season? Are you encouraged? Are you discouraged? How can I pray for you? Step in. Don't wait to be invited. Step in and ask those questions. 